I'm not quite as skilled as Aubrey, so I'll need a, a stand to, to, guard, to guard me here. Um, well, it's great to be with y'all. Um, again, my name is Blake, and I'm going to get this stand just right here. There we go. My wife is Marianne. My daughter is uh, Eleanor. And we were here, um, must have been three or four years ago, when y'all were in the old building, just down the street. Uh, so I preached uh, for Aubrey and led services back then. And my, how things have changed um, in, just, in just a few years here. We've tracked, uh, Marianne and I, we've tracked the story of incarnation from the very beginning. Actually, I knew Aubrey um, right before, I got to know him right before he moved up here to take this call, this mission. Uh, and he's been a, a good friend uh, to me and Marianne along the way. So uh, we're very happy to be here. We'll be here this week uh, hanging out in, uh, in, in this area. And we'll be back again with you uh, next week. So um, let's pray before we get into God's word here. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Christopher Hitchens, who passed away in 2011. Many of you probably know the name. He was an avowed atheist who spoke publicly and very forcefully against Christianity. But he frequently debated and even befriended Christian apologists. A guy named Larry Taunton was one of those apologists, and he wrote a book recently called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Kind of a provocative uh, title there. But what's interesting in the book, he shows... Hitchens as being someone who's actually very serious about inquiring about the truth of Christianity. Uh, He writes about private conversations he had with him, and he says, quote, he saw a man who was weighing the cost of conversion. His atheist friends and colleagues, sensing his flirtations with Christianity and fearing his all-out desertion to the hated enemy, rushed to keep him in the fold. Now, Taunton, this Christian apologist, has been roundly criticized for even raising the possibility that Hitchens, this avowed atheist, may even consider for a moment converting to the very thing he spent much of his life criticizing. But how could a guy like Taunton, this fairly sophisticated Christian apologist, how could he even for a second raise the possibility that one of the foremost avowed enemies of Christianity would convert? Well, I think Taunton knows that God has done this sort of thing before. In fact, one of the most important events in the development of Christianity is the conversion of the foremost enemy of the early church. Of course, we're talking about Saul, who, by the way, is also known as Paul. Jesus extends his grace even to his fiercest of enemies. Acts 9, 1 through 31, this is a long passage that we just read. It tells a story how of how this chief persecutor of the church becomes the chief preacher for the church. We're going to look at that, but let's get the bigger picture. So you're in this series in Acts, and look at this last verse that we read, verse 31. This is a bit of a summary statement of what's happening. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How is the church growing? How is the church multiplying in the book of Acts? 
It's growing and it's multiplying through conversions. Conversions to Christ. When Christians speak of conversion, what we're talking about, we're talking about an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And not just any encounter, but an encounter that changes us. So, let's spend some time looking at Saul's conversion and what it means for us. And let's do this under two, two headings. Let's see what Saul experiences and then how Saul changes. So, first, what Saul experiences. Saul has a dramatic encounter with Jesus. Uh, the phrase Damascus Road experience, perhaps you've heard that before or used it. It comes from this story on Paul's conversion on the road to uh, Damascus. Um, but let me say up front, Saul's conversion is not a pattern for every conversion. No conversion is a pattern for every conversion. All conversions to Christ are unique. Some are dramatic and quick, like Saul's here, and I bet in this room there are stories to be told of dramatic conversions to faith. But other conversions are slow. They are almost imperceptible. They take place over time. But they're conversions nonetheless. But to be a Christian, regardless of what conversion has looked like in your life, to be a a Christian is to encounter Jesus. So let's look and see what happens in Paul's experience here. In the Old Testament, there was another guy named Saul, King Saul, who became an enemy of God's anointed king, King David. So similarly here, this Saul in Acts also sought to destroy God's anointed king, the greater David, King Jesus. We last met this Saul in the book of Acts, giving approval to the stoning of Stephen in chapter 8. And now in verse 1, we see that Saul, Saul, uh, we see that Saul he's still at it. He's still breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. Saul here, he's zealous. He's zealous to eradicate the church because he perceives Christians to be this apostate sect of Judaism. And so in all of his zeal, in all of his piousness, he wants to destroy them, to get rid of the Christians. So he gets official permission from the chief priest to go to Damascus to carry out this persecution campaign against Christians. But on the way, something happens. Something happens that changes him forever. So look at chapter 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. First, I think we need to see that conversion, conversion is about encountering the glory of Christ. This is what Paul experiences here. He experiences the glory of Christ. Uh, Saul, he's a good Jew. He knows his Old Testament. He knows his Bible. And this brilliant heavenly light that he sees, he knows that this is associated with appearances of God in the Scriptures. And at first, this encounter with the glory of Christ, it's a terrifying thing. He falls to the ground. And then Saul says, Who are you, Lord? Now this address of Lord, it's an acknowledgement. At the very least, that he's in the presence of someone much greater than himself. And to his astonishment, the answer from this blinding light is, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. To experience glory is to experience something or someone greater, far greater than yourself, in such a way that leaves you awestruck, and maybe even a bit 
terrified as you're in awe. Uh, a few years ago, when I was a pastor in D.C., I got to open Congress with prayer. And before you think that's a big deal, let me tell you it's not. Um, they had to go far down the list uh, to, to get to me. And Congress wasn't even an official session. It was a pro forma session of Congress, but they just had to kind of go through the rigmarole of calling Congress in. And it wasn't even the real Speaker of the House. It was a Speaker pro tem. Uh, but I was excited nonetheless. Here I'm getting to open Congress with prayer, even if no one, like literally no one was in the gallery. I'm going to get to do this. And it's, you know, a little, little notch in my belt as a, as a pastor. And I remember, you know, it was all very choreographed um, about what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to stand. And so I go up to the podium, and here I'm standing, and I'm, you know, I'm just kind of in awe of the whole thing. I'm standing where the President of the United States gives the State of the Union address. There, there are C-SPAN cameras around. Um, and I remember standing there and hearing the gavel strike behind me when the speaker calls the, the session uh, to, to order. It about scared me to death. <laughs> but very nervously, I prayed the prayer. Uh, but in that moment... Um, I felt very small. It was a privilege to be there, to be sure. I was, I was honored uh, to, to do it. But I felt very, very small. And in the presence of this, this beautiful chamber, this glorious scene, um, I was terrified. Saul's experience of glory, his experience of Christ's glory, it humbles him. It humbles him literally to the ground. And when you experience the glory of something whether it's a beautiful scene, whether it's you meet someone really famous and they're kind of glorious to you, um, you don't in that moment think about how great you are. You're not thinking about your contributions to the world, right? You're, you're humbled in the presence of glory. And Saul here, he's blinded by the glory. And he's humbled. He's humbled until he realizes his need to be delivered from, from the physical blindness, but also the spiritual blindness that has characterized his life to this point. And that can only come through the Lord's gracious intervention. And that's what happens. That intervention from the Lord comes from a guy named Ananias. Ananias is appointed to be God's healing agent for Saul. Saul, he demonstrates a posture of repentance. He waits for three days. He does what Jesus tells him. He goes on to Damascus. He's fasting, another sign of repentance. Um, Look at verses 17 in 18, in chapter 9, this interaction with Ananias. So Ananias um, departed and entered the house, having received this instruction from, from the Lord. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It wasn't just that Saul's physical vision was restored, although that was certainly the case. Now, filled with the Holy Spirit, his spiritual vision is restored, is renewed. He gets a new vision. He sees everything now differently. I bet Paul was thinking about this experience when he wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
So on the one hand, Saul is blinded by the glory of Jesus and reduced to repentance. He's humbled. But on the other hand, Saul is restored by the same glory of Christ so that now he sees. He sees the world differently. The glory of Christ, it's, it's humbling, but it's also illuminating and life-changing. And Saul's spiritual vision here is transformed even as his physical vision is restored. Uh, maybe you remember the movie The Field of Dreams. Um, I was only seven years old when it came out. <laughs> I was uh, telling Marianne about this last night, this illustration. I was like, do you think this works? She's like, how do you even remember that? It's like, I, I, have, I have no idea. I had to go and look up some of the characters, remember their names. But you may remember Kevin Costner's character, um, Ray, and his wife, Annie. Um, they're being pressured to sell this farm. They're losing a lot of money. So you may remember in the story, they've built this baseball field out in the farm, and these baseball players from the past, they come and they play on this field, and only a few people can see what's happening. Most people, understandably, think they're crazy. And one of the biggest skeptics is Annie, the, the husband of Costner's, or the, the wife of Costner's character. Uh, Annie's brother is one of the biggest skeptics. He says, you've got to sell this farm. He keeps pressuring him. It's like, you're, you're crazy. There's, there's nothing out there to see. But finally, something happens. There's a dramatic moment, and he sees. He sees these baseball players in the field of dreams, and he says immediately, you're not selling this farm. You've got to keep this farm. He was blind, but now he sees. His vision changes, and now he becomes one of the biggest champions for the thing that he most hated. Everything changes. Everything changes with that new vision. Conversion to Jesus. Again, whatever conversion might look like in your particular circumstances. Conversion to Jesus is all about getting new vision. It's about coming to see the world differently and seeing Jesus Christ as a center of it. Seeing Jesus Christ as a center of history, the climactic moment of history, the death and resurrection of Christ. But it's also about seeing Jesus Christ as a center of your story, seeing your identity wrapped up in the identity of Jesus, having new vision. There's a one scholar who writes from the Apostle Paul, and he writes that the gospel story that changed Paul and the gospel story that Paul gave his life to preaching about, this gospel, this particular scholar says, calls everyone to a conversion of the imagination. Imagination is how we see the world, how we perceive the world. And the gospel, an encounter with Jesus, changes the way that we see the world. It changes our vision. But Saul also experiences something else here on this road, not just the glory of Christ. He also experiences the grace of Christ. Uh, this dramatic, unsolicited encounter with Jesus here, it highlights the free grace and mercy of God through Christ. What does Saul do? He does nothing. He's just going on down the road. But Jesus interrupts his life. Jesus interrupts his plans. Jesus interrupts his agenda. And later on, Paul says this about this experience in 1 Timothy 1. By the way, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And he says this in 1 Timothy 1.16. I receive mercy. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who are to believe on him for eternal life. 
So Paul's own implication, his own application about his conversion is, is simply this, that if someone like him, an avowed enemy of Christianity, a persecutor, if someone like him could be accepted by God and receive grace from Jesus, then no one, no one is beyond the mercy and grace of God. So Saul encounters the resurrected and ascended Jesus. He experiences the glory of Christ. He experiences the grace of Christ. And this changes him. But how has he changed? Um, I had a sort of a conversion experience, and not a Christian one. (laughs) On Christmas Day 2007, I opened up a small box about this big. And on the outside of it, it just said, iPhone. This is gift from my parents. And then as I encountered this strange new device, um, that device gradually started changing my habits and practices. This device, unfortunately, I think now, has changed the way I interact with the world. It all goes back to that encounter on Christmas Day 2007. By the way, there, there are many days in which I, I wish I could become an iPhone apostate and just Turn, turn back the clock, but I don't know if that conversion experience is going to be undone anytime soon. Um, conversion. Conversion, it means you have an encounter, but it also means that there is change because of that encounter. Conversion means an encounter with Jesus, yes, but it's an encounter that brings change. It brings change in our life. Saul's encounter with Jesus here in this passage, it changes him in two ways we see here, and I think this is important for us. He gets a new mission, And he joins a new community. Conversion. This encountering of Jesus, it always redirects us. It sets us on a new course. But it also reconnects us. It reconnects us with a new family, with new people, with a new community. So Saul here, he gets a new new mission. Uh, Saul's conversion story, his conversion experience here in Acts 9, is also his commissioning. It's not just that he's converted to Christ. He's commissioned by Christ. Jesus puts him to work. He gets busy doing the work of Christ here. Whereas before he was on the road to Damascus with the purpose of destroying the church, now he's on a journey to Damascus to upbuild the church and to strengthen it and to proclaim Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16. So again, Ananias is raised up to be the one to tell Saul his mission. But the Lord said to him, Go. For Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The Lord doesn't just show mercy to Saul and send him to the sidelines. He gives him a new mission. He gives him a new purpose. He summons him to service right away. And the word here that's used is really interesting as The Lord is telling Ananias this mission for Saul. He says, he is my chosen vessel. He's my chosen instrument. Chosen instrument to carry my name before before Israel, before kings, before the Gentiles. Now, why why is he a chosen instrument? Not just so that he can keep the blessing of Jesus to himself. No. He's called to be an instrument of blessing by proclaiming the name of Jesus. And I think behind this, uh, Saul, he becomes this great preacher who takes the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. I think behind this is this promise to Abraham. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 12, there's the call of Abraham. Abraham was called. He was chosen 
But he was chosen for what? He was chosen to be a blessing, a blessing to the nations. And this was the whole calling and vocation of Israel, what Israel was supposed to do, to be a channel of blessing, an instrument of blessing. This is what Jesus does so beautifully in his ministry. He is a chosen instrument, a channel of blessing. And so here Paul, he continues that. He is to be the chosen instrument that proclaims the name of Jesus to all the world. And here in this passage, he gets busy doing that right away. He participates in bringing God's purposes of blessing as he preaches in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. Saul here, he's blessed with the grace of Jesus so that he can take the grace of Jesus to others. He's called by Jesus and he's sent by Jesus. Now, we're not apostles in the same way that Paul is an apostle. But those of us who are in Christ, we are chosen. We're chosen for what? Well, like Saul, we are chosen to be an instrument, an instrument of God's blessing. So wherever you go in your work, in your home, with your families, in your recreation, you are an ambassador. Saul here, he moves from enemy of Christ to ambassador for Christ. And we who are in Christ, we too are called to take the name of Jesus wherever we go. But conversion for Saul also means that he joins a new community. Remember how Jesus identified himself to Saul at the very beginning. Uh, Saul thought he was just persecuting the church, right? But Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus so closely identifies with his followers. Uh, Later on, Paul is going to talk about the church, this community of Jesus, and he calls it the body of Christ, this body that he formerly persecuted. Uh, Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, Saul, that is, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Um, I love that, by the way. He, he attempted. I just had this picture of Saul coming. He's like, hey, guys, let me in. I, I'm not who you think I am. And they were like, hey, we, we're not sure about this guy. Uh, we, 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 we know the news on this Saul. Is it really true that he has made this conversion to Jesus? But it's interesting here in this passage, just as God used Ananias to bring Saul into the church in Damascus. By the way, Ananias, I love it. He, he calls Saul brother there right off the bat. Now in Jerusalem, Barnabas is raised up. Barnabas becomes Saul's sponsor to the disciples, to the church in Jerusalem. And Barnabas is like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I, 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 I've, I've seen this guy's preaching. He's proclaiming Jesus. And you wouldn't believe his story of how Jesus met him and how Jesus showed him his grace. So Saul here vouches for him, and, or Barnabas vouches for him, and Saul is brought into, a communi- into this community. A couple of implications here, I think, for us. Um, notice in this passage, in these 31 verses, how God uses other Christians to bring Saul into Christian community. You've got Ananias and Saul, and they really become sponsors. They become sponsors for Saul in these respective communities in Damascus in Jerusalem. Consider, consider that God may use you, or maybe is right now, using you like a door, a door into this community, a door into the church, that there are people in your life even right now that, um, uh, on whom you, you have some sort of influence, and that you could bring them, be a, be a means of bringing them into Christian community. But also, I think one of the main things being emphasized here is that to be a Christian, 
to be a Christian is to be a part of the Christian family, uh, the church. Um, John Stott says uh, this about this passage, a true conversion always issues in church membership, joining a community. And so we should stand ready to welcome newcomers like Barnabas and Ananias doing this passage into our fellowship. Um, even surprising, unlikely folks, even those who are in our lives who may be against the gospel. Um, I, from what I know about incarnation, I know this to be a warm, welcoming community, community that stands ready to welcome all sorts of people. Let's go back to verse 31. Hear verse 31 again. And I'm going to change it up a little bit. The church throughout all Harrisonburg and the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray for that. Let's live into that. Let's ask God to do that here. What should we expect to happen if we pray into that and we trust God would give the church peace, not just this church, but other churches that preach the gospel, to give the church in this area peace, to strengthen it? What should we expect? We should expect conversions. We should expect that new people, people in our lives right now um, who don't know the Lord, we should expect that new people will be brought in to the church. Let's ask the Lord to do that for us. Let's pray that there would be many, many who in whatever unique, unique way will be converted to the risen Lord Jesus, experience his glory and grace, be redirected by Jesus in their life, given a new purpose and folded into this community. Um, it, it dawned on me that every Sunday we have an opportunity. Those of us who've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe you're like me, I don't feel like my conversion story is that dramatic. It's sort of this, this kind of long, long story uh, with not a whole lot of exciting de- details. Um, but it dawned on me, every, every Sunday we have an opportunity for a mini-conversion. Because in our gathered liturgy, in our worship, we encounter the glory and grace of Christ in his word and at the table. We're through the word, through the table. We're refocused in our mission. And we come not alone, but we come together. We, We join our voices together. We're in this together. We come as a community. We experience here what it means to be connected to a larger family. We encounter Jesus together. So, Even now, let's open up our hearts to the ascended and risen Lord. Be in all of his grace and glory. Hear his words to us. Receive his commission again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.